1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books in Native American Studies podcast. My name's James Mackay, and I'm an Assistant Professor in British and American Literatures at European University Cyprus. Today, I'll be talking with Catherine Troy, and the book that we'll be discussing is The Spectre of the Indian, Race, Gender and Ghosts in American Seances, 1848-1890. to This book unveils the centrality of Native American spirit guides during the emergent years of American spiritualism. It connects spiritualist print and contemporary Indian policy to provide fresh insights into the racial dimensions of social reform among 19th century spiritualists. Troy draws some fascinating parallels between the contested belief of Indians as fading from the world, claims of returned apparitions and the social impetus to provide American Indians with a means of existence in white America. Rather than vanishing from national sight and memory, Indians and their ghosts are shown to be ever-present. This book transports readers into dimly lit parlour rooms and darkened cabinets, and lavishes them with detailed seance accounts in the words of those who witnessed them. Scrutinising the other wi- worldly whisperings heard therein highlights the voices of mediums and those they sought to channel, allowing the author to dig deep into spiritualist belief and practice. Catherine, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Let's
1: begin with how you came to be interested in this subject in the first place.
0: I'm a local to Long Island. I've been living here all my life. Um, And I had come to this project as a graduate student. Uh, My undergraduate work at Hofstra University had involved thinking about uh, the ghost dance in Plains Indians culture around the turn of the century. And originally, I thought that was going to be sort of the long haul in terms of my graduate work. But then something sort of shifted in my thinking where I began to take in uh, sort of more and more interests that lean toward um, our history of the weird or the supernatural or the gothic. And so I found this sort of niche topic inside of spiritualist history as a way to sort of engage in things that I was newly becoming interested in with something that was a tried and true interest to sort of keep me uh, perpetually interested throughout the project so that I wouldn't lose any momentum.
1: And why do you think spiritualism is particularly important for understanding Indian white relationships in the 19th century?
0: I mean, it wasn't something that I went into spiritualist reading looking to find. I had been reading about spiritual history, just sort of becoming generally interested in the project. But I'd already at that point done a lot of work in Indian history. And so when I started to see these sort of references to things in the secondary and sometimes even the primary literature that I was reading, I began to notice that there was a a huge potential for looking at these things more carefully, but that there had seemed to be a gap in what historians were addressing in that moment. And I'd seen a primary sort of focus on... Uh, the role of women in spiritualist history or the role uh, that African-American spirits may have played in in spiritualist history. And I just saw this sort of wide open area for me to um, explore a little bit more uh, in depth than had been that I'd really even seen anywhere.
1: And you found lots of references to Indian ghosts immediately, or was this quite an obscure part of spiritualism?
0: It, it kept slapping me in the face no matter what I was reading, that it was um, sort of right there on the page. Like I didn't, when I started um, really looking more deeply into primary documents, if, uh, one of the things that I used as a primary archive was the Banner of Light, the spiritualist um, journal that had run once a week for 50 years. So it was a remarkable amount of, of issues. And almost every issue, And sometimes more than one page. It was coming up over and over again to the point where I think for a majority of the run, there was a specific column that was set aside simply talking about Indian affairs, not even inside of a spiritualist context, but things that would um, connect to readers what was going on in real life in Indian country with what they may or may not have been experiencing at a seance table.
1: Now, one of the things that I found fascinating with your project was that you took a decision, um, a deliberate decision, to not make any statements as to the truth or otherwise of the experiences of the spiritualists, to treat the ghosts as real. Um, would you talk a little bit about why you took this decision and what that it meant It did start out as a
0: methodological choice because there would have been it would have been problematic to sort of answer this question that had appeared in some of the literature as to what the intentions of the spiritualists were. If you're looking at mediums who were already outed as being fraudulent. Um, and so then you, you have to have dealt with the question of, well, if you make the assumption that all of these experiences are fraudulent, then where does that leave you in terms of um, people sort of creating these cultural stereotypes um, and does that make it closer to playing Indian than not? And I'm certainly not saying that there weren't frauds. Plenty of them were, but at the same time, even if that is true, that might have been coming just from a medium's point of view, but the medium isn't the only person involved in this experience. So if you're talking about the people who would have been coming to these tables and witnessing them, for them, there is something that's happening in a seance that hues very, very closely to this idea of having a religious experience and that those religious experiences then exhibit themselves in the print that people who were true believers this is the way that they're interpreting their world. This is the way that they're interpreting what they're seeing at the table and then bringing it outside of those rooms into a public venue like a uh, journal. So it didn't really make sense for me to think about it in that way because it it was sort of irrelevant to what I was getting at. For me, personally, to not make uh, a statement was more about sort of the same thing that um, i i I wasn't there. Uh It's not necessarily something that I could say yes, absolutely. I believe in a um a spirit world, but I wouldn't necessarily rule it out either because I'm just not I don't have an experience that skews me one way or the other. So for me, as a historian, it felt like my responsibility to be objective so that I could give the best voice to the kinds of cultural issues that I was studying.
1: I noticed you use a term there uh playing Indian which I presume that you're taking from the uh, well-known study by Philip Deloria. Uh, Would you talk a little bit about the history of representation uh, as it appears in studies like these?
0: Um, I've seen, I mean, the, the book Playing Indian has become such an important part of the sort of strain of Indian history that deals not necessarily with live Indians specifically, but with the idea, the concept of Indianness that has played a huge role in um, American culture and how we tend to think about Indians as somehow forming an American identity that is part European based on a colonial heritage, but part something new that makes us distinct. Um, And so that book has become the sort of seminal work in dealing with this. And one of the sort of questions, uh, the theoretical questions that you have to deal with, with something like a cultural performance is if they fall on, do they all fall under this same category that the mediums are the ones who are playing Indian, that they are dressing up there, um, they're dressing up at their seance tables, either literally or, or metaphorically, um, to bring something uh, cultural, to bring the sort of complexity into the mix of the experience that they're, that they're offering to people either in private rooms or in public. And ultimately for this book, I sort of had to say, no, it it doesn't really work quite that way. Because for me, um, I usually think back to one of the first things that Deloria does in the book, Playing Indian. The first example that he gives is uh, the colonists dressing up as Indian during the Boston Tea Party as a way to obscure their identity for political purposes, but also as a way of semi-representing this idea of Indians as having more freedom at that point in their mind than the colonists had. And I don't necessarily think that that's what the mediums are doing here. Um, I think, if anything, uh, that if they're bringing these things in, that it's being done mostly on a subconscious level, and that that bringing those ideas about what Indianness is and what Indianness means for Americans of bringing that to the foreground and something that sees so much play in print um, at that time in print media, that it can show that there is more nuance to this than a simple idea of putting on a mask, putting on a costume and sort of getting away from yourself. There's, elements of that, but I wouldn't say that it falls so strictly under that category that they should just be lumped together into simply cultural play and not address all of these other sort of aspects and issues that are perhaps even more prominent than that.
1: And that also goes for a project like Philip Jenkins, where he goes and looks at the new age in much the same way. Would you suggest that Uh, if we're looking at the new age of the 70s and 80s, we should uh, do this thing of of taking it literally in the way that you do?
0: Yeah, I mean, it certainly is. Um, Some point early on in my research, uh, I decided that I wasn't going to travel down that avenue. I think that it would have blown the book uh, out of realistic proportions in terms of length. Um, And yes, there's, there's absolutely, I mean, if Even just from a sort of a very basic overview of it, I would say there are certainly parallels and there seems to be a resurgence in some of the attitudes that uh, 19th century spiritualists brought forth that show themselves in the New Age. But then, of course, there's a question of awareness. Um, So then the idea that, well, if, if New Agers are doing some of the same things that spiritualists do without being aware of what spiritualists are doing, then is this something that is Culturally embedded at that point, and then can you say that spiritualists are maybe responsible for that, even if people are not aware of it? It is possible because uh, spiritualists became such a sort of popular phenomenon in our culture that by the time uh, Hasbro, the toy company, puts out the Ouija board as a, a method of play, then that popularity just increases exponentially to the point where mediums are not necessary any longer, that you could do this in your living room and you don't need any sort of specialized help at that point. So it sort of transforms the idea of um, private spirit practice for entertainment purposes or whatever. Um, It would take probably another series of years for me to really be able to say with a great amount of certainty what the underlying issues are for um, for Indian spirituality as it shows up in the New Age. I think maybe part of it has to do with, again, what would have been going on in Indian country in the 1960s and 1970s. In the 1970s, especially, uh, Indians are making themselves more visible um, through things like the American Indian movement. So in the same way that here I've sort of paralleled what is going on uh, in spiritualists' houses in Um, Upstate New York or in the Northeast, what is happening in Indian country at the same time and how much visibility is influencing how these people are thinking about Indians as spiritual beings rather than as uh, the way that you would think about any other sort of social category.
1: Wonderful. That raises so many research questions. I can see so many blind alleys we could go down. Uh, But now I want to get back to your book and really specifically to spiritualism, which isn't something that many people listening to this will necessarily be familiar with. Uh, Could you describe spiritualism, what it means, what its main tenets are and so forth? Uh,
0: So, I mean, spiritualism with a capital S is quite simply the belief in uh, a spiritual existence, both Uh, during life and then continuing after that. So what spiritualists tried to do in practice was to prove that that very basic maxim, which is sort of the underlying idea behind most world religions is true to an extent that you could prove it, not necessarily theologically. It's not supposed to be faith-based, so it's not strictly a religion, Um, but it is supposed to be fact-based, evidence-based. So the purpose of a seance is very akin to a scientific experiment, uh, that through physical methods, through technological methods, through electrical methods, uh, most people refer to the idea of communication as a spiritual telegraph. That was the cutting edge technology of their time. So they did think about communication in those, uh, ways using those kinds of words, um, What can we do to prove to non-believers that life after death does exist and that there is some form of communication between the living and the not living?
1: So they kept a lot of records of this. You're talking about this as experiments. Uh, And that's really what the banner of light is, a sort of gradual systematizing of spiritualist experience.
0: Systematizing, probably not. Recording, absolutely. I mean, this this is what they wanted to do so that even people who were not hearing about it by word of mouth, if they were interested, if they were skeptical, they were really trying as much as possible to get people to come and see what they could, whether it was um, a medium that maybe lived around the corner from them and was doing things out of her parlor, or if you wanted to go down to the Banner of Light office, they held public meetings regularly. Um, so... As far as systemization, that is maybe the one cornerstone of spiritualism that makes it categorically not a religion with a capital R. Um, That It it has religious undertones. It certainly has very strong Christian undertones, but it is not authoritarian. It is non-institutional in any sort of way. Um, There's no spiritualist leader, one single um, figure of authority. There were authority figures as you could say that the mediums were that or people who wrote um, vast tracts of theological interpretations could be considered leaders among the spiritualists but there were probably just as many interpretations of spiritualism as there were spiritualists and they were perfectly fine with that um, and that sort of allowed their print culture to be very vibrant Um, There's lots of overlap. And so what I sort of tried to do in my book was to indicate these were some of the larger trends within, but there's always something uh, out there that isn't necessarily singular in terms of being unique or being contradictory, but would also have a strain in spiritualism where you could see these sort of different ideas about how close is spiritualism to Christianity, how close is it to spiritualisms of the ancient world, how close is it to what um, people on the subcontinent in India would have been practicing? How close is it to what classical Greeks and Romans were thinking about? Um, Those kinds of ideas ran sort of rampant in spiritualism. Uh, So it was not something that anybody was trying to codify. That would have, I think, gone against the grain of one of their purposes is that for most spiritualists, if they're especially if they were coming from a Christian background, which at least I would say 90 to 95% of them were, if not more, um, th- one of the things that they are sort of being pulled away from is the idea that uh, Christianity for them at that moment had become stale, had become sort of non-emotional for them. And um, uh, Jackson Lears writes in his book about this idea that spiritualism is one of many examples of the sort of anti-modernist push that modernity had seemed to be sort of stripped of its emotion because of technology and because of rational thinking, and that spiritualism is a way to sort of resist that thinking by becoming sort of more emotional and more intuitive.
1: It's, it's interesting because the end of spiritualism then basically bleeds over into Pentecostalism, which is a, a, it's a different sort of return, isn't it, to American Christianity? Anyway, the reason I was asking about systems was that you mentioned quite often the idea of the celestial spheres and that sort of way of thinking about the afterlife. And in particular, the place that Indians occupied within that. It seems to be something where people are talking about how to actually place Indians in the afterlife. How, how were they categorized?
0: Um, so the the spheres, is it, it's sort of akin to thinking about um, – Buddhist stages of, of reincarnation with the essential goal that eventually you get to um, something that is true enlightenment. So the, the first sphere is considered the living sphere, which is the sphere that we're in. And then outside of that um, are seven other spheres. So it's the idea that there's these, somebody put it as the rings of Saturn in their um, theological thinking, essentially these concentric circles that aren't necessarily physical barriers or cosmic barriers, but essentially um, different levels of enlightened thinking for spirits. And that you would progress through the spheres as you pass from this life into the next one um, in terms of how well you engage with the idea of spiritual improvement. So that sort of cultural foundation that Americans had based on back to Puritan thinking this idea of of self-reflection self-improvement that becomes one of the cores of what spirits are doing once they no longer have jobs or anything else to worry about um, that in the afterlife you you're focusing on how to bring yourself essentially closer to grace or closer to God or closer to this idea of being a pure, Spirit. So as you would move through these spheres, um, some of the things that you might um, expect would be a person who could speak more than one language, people that had knowledge, gained knowledge from a higher sphere, spiritual spheres, that there's sort of a top-down flow of information and of educational experiences where the more you're able to teach others then the higher up you go. Uh, So that seemed to be sort of generally understood as the way that spheres worked. I didn't really see any literature that contradicted that. What does happen where people are interpreting things differently is where to place different social categories because those spheres don't necessarily work in the same way that um, race does or even gender does in American society at that point, which is very highly stratified. So for Indians in particular, there seemed to be this debate as to which sphere is it that they are coming from. Um, The original, there's this sort of first interpretation that Indians must be coming from the lower spheres, the spheres that are closer to Earth because that proximity is what allows them to communicate with earth that if you're in a higher sphere closer to something akin to an angel that the, those are not the sort of beings that are coming back to seance tables that it would be something lower and that um, that's one of the reasons that indian spirits are making their presence known is that they are educating the people who are in the living sphere the people who are at that seance table they're talking to them about the way that heaven is ordered. They're talking to them about what the intentions of the great spirit are, even though that term, the great spirit, is a highly charged Indian term, that that's what most spiritualists sort of use as referring to a greater deity. And uh, they could talk about, you know, your son who died in the Civil War, he's fine, he's happy, and I couldn't be a guide for you to come and speak with him. I will tell you what it's like to travel into the spirit world. That seemed to be something that people could do if they were in the lower spheres to do all that talking. The second interpretation was that Indians were coming from higher up in the in the ladder, that their enlightenment and their spiritual power was so strong that they could still make that connection to earth without being in the lower spheres, that their spiritual power um, allows them to transcend multiple spheres.
1: How were African Americans uh, placed within this?
0: There was not as much evidence of African-American spirits as being discussed in these sorts of ways that for whatever reason that I can't really decipher other than um, that at that point, they'd seem to have taken up more prominence in in America's imagination that if, Amer- if African-American spirits appeared, they were usually in very small places um, where – usually on like the last page, on page seven for the Banner of Light, they would have just these short little, not even full paragraph notices of different voices that had come through and what the message was. And they would usually appear there. They weren't something that, at least to what I had seen, got really spoken about in you know enormous amounts of detail and length the way that Indian spirits would, that they would appear and they would have their own messages. But then there was also lots and lots of literature of spiritualists talking about what they thought the significance of those appearances was.
1: Okay. Uh, You mentioned the great spirit just now and that concept. Was there any crossover between spiritualism and any traditional native belief systems, any tribal belief systems?
0: Only to the degree that you could say that Indian peoples believed in a spiritual system. I mean, only in that very, very basic and generic sense. Um, At that point, most Americans knew little to nothing about Indian religions. I mean, it was only just sort of becoming in vogue for people to go out to places like the Plains and and study uh, Indian cultures. The sort of foundations for anthropology are, are only just sort of emerging at that moment. And I think it's sort of part of that larger strain in American society at the end of the 19th century to preserve the things that they feel are being lost. That there's a, a frontier thesis by Frederick Jackson Turner. This idea that this turning point in American culture is when that space, the frontier space, this sort of in between of uh, civilization and wildness, is is disappearing as we continue to move and. St- uh, settle towards the western coast in California, that all of a sudden there's this sort of scramble to preserve things that we felt were integral to American culture. And so um, there's a movement to preserve certain areas, and that's where the development of the first federal and state national parks are um, concerned there's also this sort of strain to preserve indian cultures because this they would also be seen as vanishing and that's how they sort of get connected to the land in even more nuanced ways than they had been before as they sort of become part of the environment that we think is disappearing
1: um and and in terms of uh, the study you've, you've done you've chosen this year 1848 to begin why that specific year
0: 1848 is usually seen by spiritualist scholars as the, the marking point, the beginning of spiritualism, uh, because that is the year in which the Fox sisters who were living in Rochester in upstate New York Uh, where they first started claiming that they were getting messages from the spirit world. Uh, They were people who were experiencing uh, what we call raps or knocks, uh, these sort of hard knocks on the walls, on the floors, and that it had progressed from the simple, you know, one for yes, two for no, to this very sort of complicated system where they could um, translate complete and full messages Uh, For the afterlife. And people would come into their house um, and eventually the crowds of public who knew nothing about the Fox systems other than through word of mouth was growing to the point where they would have, you know, dozens and hundreds of visitors every night bringing in, you know, test ideas. You know, I'm going to write a question and I'm going to fold it up on a piece of paper and stick it in my pocket, and I'll never say anything to anybody. And if an answer comes through, then I know that this is a legitimate um, experience. That's where that started, and then from there, more mediums began to sort of um, either become publicized, or were making themselves known, or were offering public demonstrations of spiritualism. And from that point, then the the mechanism for um, public lecturing and for public exhibitions sort of it exploded in that direction.
1: Okay. And and when did Indian spirits start appearing to spiritualists?
0: Uh, Pretty early. Um, The first uh, recording I had was of um, Jenny Lord, um, and I believe it was in 1851, if I remember correctly. But, I mean, it wasn't really that far from the start of it, that literally almost from the very kind of beginning of when spiritualism is starting to, to become this you know public widely recognized phenomenon indian spirits are making their appearance
1: and this spirits who appeared um can you talk a little bit about who who it was who was appearing um maybe maybe starting with black hawk i guess and, and why black hawk was so significant that uh, uh, to to spiritual
0: uh, black hawk was it it was an incredible phenomenon to sort of be going through the sources that indicated that Black Hawk was present. I mean he was one of the earliest spirits to arrive on the scene and um if we count the spiritualism that still um is practiced in places like New Orleans, then hypothetically he hasn't gone away when I was sort of making these sort of um statistical data to myself, I noticed that his Spirit was coming up more and more compared to other spirits, that he was just showing up, you know, two or three times as much as any other person. And I think that part of the reason for that is that, especially in those early years where spiritualism as a movement is just getting off the ground, that his figure is one that is able to sort of cement in people's minds this idea of the authenticity of spiritualist experience. And Black Hawk is able to do that because as a living figure, he had already been a public figure. So this idea of creating an authentic experience, this idea of, well, I'm making something cre- personally authentic to myself. I'm going to write something on a piece of paper and put it in my pocket, something that nobody else is going to guess or, or know the answer to. That kind of authentication is difficult to achieve with an Indian spirit because to some degree, Northeasterners realize they don't know the first thing about living Indians. So to authenticate, well, is that actually what Indians would say? How is Is that how Indians would act? Is that how they would sound? They don't really know. And they sort of recognize that. So to take a public figure that seemed to them at that point was well-known, it created this sort of very useful tool for being able to legitimize on the first hand the presence of Indian spirits, but then in a grander scheme to legitimize the entire spiritualist um, experiment.
1: Okay. And when we're talking about authenticity, um, how did language play into that? What sort of language were they using? Were they talking in Indian tongues, broken English, or how were they how were they speaking?
0: All of the above. I mean, and, and that's one of the more complex things about this phenomenon is that authenticity could be achieved in a variety of ways that if people were speaking in tongues, then sometimes they would try to um, sort of legitimize it after the fact that let's say a record of a seance coming out in print would say that the woman, the medium had spoken in tongues. And then later on a a, a seance sitter had gone and authenticated that that language was for real and not just gibberish. Um, they would sometimes speak. I mean, it was fairly common for Blackhawk, especially when he was being conjured by Jenny Lord, to speak in uh, broken English. And at that point, it had become a sort of a, a stereotype of Indian speech. So you get uh, me, Blackhawk, they always refer to themselves in the third person. That would be one of the categorizers. Me, Blackhawk, me do something good for you. Um, that sort of language was very, very common. And From spiritualist terms, that idea is interpreted as um, he has a long way to go in terms of spiritual enlightenment. Um, Later on uh, in the 1860s and uh, 1870s and 1880s, he is seen through another medium's eyes, uh, Teresa Shellhammer, who becomes the sitting medium for the Banner of Light. He becomes much more eloquent and it sort of shifts to this other stereotype of Indian language that we have that Indians are eloquent, that Indians are great orators. and so that that strain then sort of comes through and there's lots of um, uh, romantic naturalist metaphors in their language, and that that becomes sort of recognized as being typical of Indian speech.
1: And what sort of uh, messages were they trying to get through these
0: mediums? at first, um, the point was just to essentially say, I'm here. And I am an Indian, that spiritually speaking, that that categorization, that sense of Indianness didn't necessarily go away. Um, So for Black Hawk, one of the ways that he's authenticated, aside from speech, which is important, there were other things. There were these oral cues, these um, sound cues of how do Indians sound? So this idea that an Indian is authentically Indian when he's stomping on the ground. When the sound that his foot makes on a wooden floor is the sound of a foot in leather moccasins. Um, that if you're going to hear him moving around, you hear the jingling of beads. Or if you're going to be touched, you feel leather. You feel feathers. Um, so that very... Typical Plains Indian costume that essentially becomes a sort of the umbrella image for all Indian nations. That becomes um, one of the ways that people say, "Yeah, that's definitely an Indian," because that's not the same, you know, white lady that I heard come in a minute ago with her, you know, muslin dress, shuffling on the floor. That it sounds different, where it feels different.
1: And these things would physically manifest in the séance room.
0: Yeah. At least, you know, as far as the people who were sitting there were concerned, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I'm following your methodological thing. I'm not uh, disputing the the factuality here. Um, I have a certain skepticism, but uh, I'll keep that out of here. Um, So going a little bit more into the messages that they were passing on, you sort of talk a great deal about there were sort of warnings being passed on and so forth. But I suppose my first question is, if these spirits are appearing to white mediums, why are they not more angry?
0: Part of that is because they're demonstrating their own spiritual growth. That had become a sort of a cornerstone of them sort of prefacing what it is that they're going to say. That some of the um, mediums that would come, the spirits that would come later that had almost exclusively, almost every time that they came was for warnings for purposes. Um, people like uh, White Eagle or White Arrow or... Uh, Logan, that they would come in and say, you know, I was I was very angry. I had lots of hate in my heart, especially for. And then they would name call um, General Custer, General Sheridan. Um, they would then say, "But I've I've been taught and I've been controlling my anger to the point where I can come and and help you." That they say that they've had that anger there and that they've struggled with that anger, but that their anger has sort of faded to the point where they can then become useful and become helpful and allow their stories and allow their warnings to come through. That that's part of their spiritual work. That's actually the crux of their spiritual work, that in order for Indians to progress through the spheres, they have to shed that earthly anger and they have to use their experiences as a way to help people who are in the living sphere make that sphere to make Earth as close as possible to the design of the Great Spirit. And that is essentially how they're doing it, is that they're urging the people who are in those seance tables to find a way to resolve this question of what to do with Indian peoples as we continue to expand into the continent. You have to answer it in a way that isn't warfare. Essentially, that's what they're saying, because you create this anger. And essentially, it's a buildup of bad karma, that they're saying that you're, you know, these sort of apocalyptic cosmic terms for the future of the nation, if this is something that you don't address. And I I kind of refer to it very briefly in my book, but in my head, it's always sort of the Jacob Marley syndromes. That's the whole reason for this appearance is that it's for your welfare, it's for your salvation that I come.
1: But it's explicitly recognizing the sins of Euro-America.
0: It certainly is
1: okay and, and and you say apocalyptic were there warnings of physical apocalypses, or was this a spiritual apocalypse again?
0: both I mean, they would talk about what would happen to specific individuals, um so I think it was uh. General Sheridan was one of the people that for some um, reason that is fairly clear because he's one of the people that's responsible for um, Indian massacres that he got lots and lots of bad press in spiritualist print. And there was a record I remember, I can't remember which spirit it was, but that essentially they said that if this guy does not sort of get on the bandwagon, nobody's taking him across the river that he's, he's going to get stranded in the world of between the spirits and the living because no one's going to take him to that other world. Nobody's taking him to the Summerland.
1: And there were messages for Colonel Chivington as well, weren't there?
0: Yeah, it was also super special. Yeah, uh, did either Sheridan or Chivington appear as spirits?
1: Do you, did you ever see anything like that happen?
0: I, I did not. Um, I don't. I don't know the lifespans of those two generals particularly well, but I know that um, I was so I, I laughed out loud in what's supposed to be a very quiet archive when I <laughs> <laughs> when I saw when I saw um, the uh, passage from General Custer. And it was very, very close uh, after his death at the Battle of the Little Bighorn, and it, it was just a few lines. But basically, it was you know what a mistake I've made, and I couldn't <laughs> help my, and I couldn't help myself because it was just so unbelievably on point. <laughs> no. Yeah.
1: Okay. Right. Yeah. Wow. That really is on point.
0: Well, yeah. It was um, like, there was no way not to laugh. So, you know, I just, and I had people looking at me and I said, nobody's going to understand if I explain what I just said, but I mean, it was an incredible thing to find.
1: Yeah. Wow. Um, in, in your study, um, one of the choices you've made is sort of one uh, chapter deals with male figures, particularly chiefs. And then another one deals with female figures. What What part does gender play here for you?
0: I thought that it was significant for me that as I was sort of, um, I mean, if one of the first things that I did as I was recording all of the experiences that I could get my hands on is that I noticed that there were patterns and that those patterns did um, run along gendered lines. Um, And so that was what sort of made me then go back and and think about what gender meant in America at that time and sort of why this would have some sort of meaning for people Um, that the chiefs are, are demonstrating themselves in ways that are considered in the 19th century in America specifically and unilaterally masculine, that there's a remark for most of them about how tall they are, that they're you know reaching upwards of six feet. And usually that would be indicated by um, if an Indian spirit is perceived as coming out of a spiritual cabinet, which is sort of like a wardrobe that you can sit in, that they're bumping their heads as they're trying to come out that they're towering over people Um, and they would be very loud and very booming. Whereas the females, they're doing different things. Um, They are seen as being very sort of lithe and uh, sprightly on their feet. They're seen more childlike and they're not necessarily skewed as being adults. Um, So there seem to be very different ways in which from like a physical, spiritual, physical appearance that they're, they're, becoming sort of different things that authenticating an Indian male is a different process than authenticating an Indian maiden and that the Indian maidens, their stories did not have that same sense of, I used to be angry and I'm not now. They became much more tragic figures where they would essentially, um, in very nostalgic and romantic terms, tell about their, you know, carefree lives that were um, lived in freedom in their own um, towns or villages within their own tribes. And that the, introduction of white men into their world, essentially, is what creates that devastation, what creates that loss of life. And so the whole idea behind the Indian maidens was to create for the sitters, for the people who are experiencing their stories, this sense of sympathy. Whereas what the men are doing is essentially scaring people into doing what they want. They're demonstrating how powerful they are, whereas the maidens are more about creating this sort of emotional connection, the sympathetic connection to Indian spirits. So they're complementing each other and they're sort of uh, a double-edged sword when they work together is that they're doing both things that will essentially work to motivate spiritualist sitters into some sort of political action
1: which takes us into the tragic, tragic irony of your last chapter where you talk about uh, spiritualist activism on behalf of living Indian nations. So would you talk a little bit about spiritualist influence on the Doors Act?
0: Uh, yeah, I I've said I... My original um, research into Indian history had been the ghost dance. And so from that perspective, the Dawes Act is the most terrible thing that could have possibly have ever happened. Because the Dawes Act, the whole idea behind it was to break the tribes, that idea of severalty, the severance of the tribes as legal entities, so that they're not going to be recognized anymore as Um, as these groups that the United States Congress or the president can deal with as a group, as an entity. They don't exist anymore. The only thing that they will recognize is individual citizens if they go through the process of becoming citizens. So from that point of view, and from the cultural point of view, it's it's one of the sort of death strikes um, for Indian culture that Assimilation becomes essentially the only way forward. And that assimilation through, um, usually through schools like the um, Carlisle and the Pratt School, um, they are essentially teaching kids how to be white children. They are taking them from that extended family context context both to keep them away from Indian influences, but as a way that says, you know, children in terms of education, they're more malleable than than adults who have grown up um, and are not really, you know, willing to change the way that they view the world. But kids can be taught how to speak English, how to read the Bible. We can teach them how to farm, which of course they already knew how to farm, but um, the land that they were given was not farmable. We can teach them all of these things that make Life in white culture livable and survivable for them. And then they can go back to their families. And that message, then for the adults, will come a little bit more um, palatable because it would be coming from their children that they're not learning from an outsider, that they're learning from an insider. And that that child then can um, try to negotiate for their parents how to live in a white world. Um, so there's an enormous amount of literature about how atrocious this was for the kids and for their parents. Uh, Ward Churchill is one of the predominant scholars on this that categorically and undeniably shows how genocidal the impact was of these kinds of um, programs that were supposed to be civilizing, were supposed to be um, a way to assimilate uh, Indians so that the United States military would not continue to slaughter them. Um So I'm coming into it with that mindset, essentially. And then when I start to see spiritualist literature praising the Dawes Act, it sort of took me for a loop for a minute. But then I sort of realized that in their mind, the best thing that they could have done for Indians was to give them citizenship. That for spiritualists, that was why they supported the Dawes Act, because they were essentially making the probably correct calculation that if Indians remain as Legally, as just tribal Indians, they will never see an end to the massacres that uh, spiritualists had splayed all over their um, news pages. That that's never going to stop. The only way that we can give them the protection for life, for property, for the pursuit of happiness, is to make them citizens and to give them the same rights that we have. From a cultural point of view, that doesn't really fly. But that was what i think the intention was
1: yeah the intention is honorable um from their perspective yeah (gasps) wow it's
0: yeah oh and the other part of it is that from a you know from a cultural standpoint and i think part of this goes back to how they understand the idea of the spheres that the spheres are not a cultured stratification that there are supposed to be indians living in the different spheres as they sort of progress through the same way they would for whites or any other non-whites. I mean, if anything, the spheres are more sort of class-based, that it's, it's more about where your particular enlightenment is at any one moment. So Indians are able to prove that they're capable of education, that they're capable of advancement, that they're capable of civilized behaviors and thinking, which is one of the reasons that spiritualists wholeheartedly jump into this idea of the civilization project because one of the arguments for critics would have been, well, Indians aren't capable of learning how to be white or how to be civilized. And spiritualists would say, well, yes, of course they are because they've been showing us that for decades now. Um, So they're not necessarily thinking that a shed of Indianness is a bad thing. They're, They're thinking that a utopia is really a culturalist society, which makes no sense. It's not practical, but I think that was along their lines of thinking
1: right yeah wow it's it's an absolutely fascinating <laughs> yeah. set of stories and and raises so many questions um about uh, the the colonial imagination and the unconscious um but yeah so um that that's where i want to uh finish here i was just wondering if very briefly i could ask you about your your other life um as a as a novelist and and how that got started
0: oh god i don't know <laughs> Um, (laughs) uh, I was actually, um, in the middle of, of switching career training. So I was driving well I wasn't I was going on a the train for the Long Island Railroad from where I live on Long Island into the city to receive culinary training. So I'm also trained as a pastry chef in case you ever need cake or cookies or croissants or whatever. And yeah. <laughs> and it was a it was a long ride. And originally I thought to myself I'm I'm gonna read. I had had just had a child so I, I certainly had no me time at that point. Um, but I had a lot of other ideas that were floating in my head about essentially books that I would have liked to read, but they didn't exist. So I tried this other experiment. Um, my husband, uh, is a master in creative writing. That's what his uh, training is in. So I had seen him write a novel. Like I kind of saw that that does happen for some people and it seemed doable. And, um, and now it's like six or seven novels in, (laughs) it just hasn't stopped.
1: Well, um, listeners can find uh, more about that at your blog, which is Lady Bathory's Closet uh, at Blogspot. Um, And for everything else, I'd like to say thank you very much, Catherine. It's been a fascinating discussion. Um, I really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you so much again.